Do you guys remember the story of six-year-old George Washington and his hatchet and the cherry tree? It's a story that's like kind of embedded in how kids learn about the founding fathers, right? Six-year-old George Washington is given a hatchet by his dad. And like any six-year-old boy with a hatchet is finding something to hit with it. And goes out into the garden and he finds this cherry tree um, that his dad loved. And six-year-old George goes to town on this tree. Like, just tears it to pieces. That's what a hatchet's for, right? Later his dad discovers it and is very upset because... This is his tree that he loves. And when he asks George about it, George says what? I cannot tell a lie. I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. And after that, his dad embraces him and he declares that his son's honesty is worth far more than a thousand cherry trees. It's a story I remember as a kid. I remember reading it in children's books. I think I remember it from school, too. And it's always expressed as like, look at George, look at six-year-old George, first president of the United States, what honesty and truthfulness, even when he was young, be like him. Which is good. Honesty and truthfulness are very good things. Here's the problem, though. That story's entirely made up. It's not real. It was invented after George died by an author named Mason Weems. It's a guy who published a biography about George Washington, the year after he died, and to kind of push sales, he embellished or made up from whole cloth stories about George Washington. He wanted to paint him as like this um, near flawless hero. But why? Why make up the stories? If you actually know anything about George Washington, he was unquestionably a historical figure that was significant. He was a classic, in the classic sense, a great man. He did incredible things. You don't need to make up stories to make him seem impressive. So why did, you, why did Mason Weems feel the need to create this story? I think he felt something in him that thought the foundation of our country needs to be pure. Like, if, if it's not pure then we're going to get off on the wrong foot. That if America was going to be worth it as a nation and as an idea, as an experiment in human history, then we needed a founding father who was flawless. And then future Americans can think, well, I'm an American, which means I'm kind of a child of George Washington, the man who was so honest and so good that he couldn't tell a lie. What I'm saying is Mason Weems making up this story had less to do with George Washington and more to do with Mason Weems and his anxieties about the future of his country. Had less to do with George, had more to do with Mason Weems and how he felt that if he couldn't find a firm foundation in his mind for the country, then all was going to be lost. I bring all of this up because something like that is going on in the background of our passage and in the book of Galatians. It's what the Apostle Paul is writing against in our passage today. Because there were people in the churches in the region of Galatia who were telling the new Christians there who weren't from a Jewish background whatsoever, yes, you came to faith in Jesus. Yes, you came to faith in Jesus, but you need something else to be fully accepted and fully assured of God's love. 
And to make their point, they were saying, well, you know, you, you do need faith, yes, but you need to do some stuff too to be fully accepted. Like you can't just believe and be thought of as righteous. You've got to do some stuff. They're saying, look back to Abraham after all. Abraham trusted God and then he did a bunch of things and God rewarded him for his own righteousness. And this kind of idea had some deep roots. Like you can go back and read authors from, you know, 1st century B.C. or 1st century A.D. And they're, they're trying to figure out, God called Abraham, why? Is it because God looked at him and said, well, he's really righteous. Look how righteous he is. Now I need to call him and reward him. No. No. The idea was that God had seen something in Abraham or he had looked forward in time to see something in Abraham's descendants that made them especially deserving of his love. But Paul writes here to make it clear what God had done all along from Abraham all the way down to us, which is to invite his people into a way of life that is primarily defined about God, defined by God in what he has done. Not trying to find some perfect ancestor to tie yourself to. Not trying to make up stories to explain God's love. But a way of life that can revel and enjoy His love as an unearned gift that is ours because God has decided it's ours. With that said, our passage this morning, Galatians 3, 15-19, this is God's Word. Good, beautiful, and true. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for the good news of the gospel. Thank You for Your word. I pray this morning as we look into the treasure of your word that you would move by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see all that is ours in Christ, and that we would seek all of that from no other place, that we would come to you by faith with open hands. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When uh, Angela and I got married, her cousin Linda gave us this little thumb piano. I meant to bring it this morning. If you've been to my house, you've probably seen it. It's one of these little boards, and you can pluck away at it. It's very pleasant sounding. But I remember when we opened it, um, I thought, this is a really quirky and weird wedding present. Um, but I think that's what made it special. Because Linda knew Angela and I were musicians, and rather than get us a toaster or more traditional wedding gifts, she found this unique thing that made her think of us and our uniqueness. 
And we've carried that thing everywhere. Every move we've had, it's come along with us. And through the last 16 plus years, I'll pick that thing up all the time and just, you know, pluck out a little melody, put it back on the shelf. And now Declan, he'll regularly pick it up and do the same thing. And that little weird (laughs) thumb piano has become a a thing that I treasure because it's it's an emblem of Linda's love and friendship of us. Every time I see it and touch it or hear it, it reminds me of her. That thumb piano is a pledge to me that somebody loved me. I bring that up because in Genesis 15, which we read a part of in our call to worship this morning, God gives Abraham something like that. Abraham is struggling to believe God's words. It's been ten years since God said, leave your father's house, leave your home country. I'm going to take you to a land that's going to belong to you and your descendants. I'm going to bless you and you're going to be great, meaning you're going to be a whole lot. Like (laughs) You are going to have a lot of uh, descendants. I'm going to bless you and through your family, I'm going to bless all the families on earth, every nation. But it's been ten years. And it doesn't feel like anything's happened. Ten years. It's starting to feel like just words. So Abraham basically says, Ten years ago you said you would make me into a great nation. And I don't have a single kid. I don't have a child. Um, I'm having a really hard time believing this. So God, you may notice, doesn't just reiterate his commitment to his promise. He could just say it again. Just remind Abraham of what he had said. But that's not what God does. He doesn't just repeat what he had said. He does repeat it. But he also does something else. He gives Abraham a tangible sign. Something he can look to that that points to this promise. And it will continuously point to God's commitment to this promise. And he tells Abraham what? To look up into the night sky and count the stars. Now, what that meant is that for the rest of his life, every time Abraham looked up into the night sky, he saw those stars, and they, in a sense, spoke to him of that promise. It wasn't just words now. The the creation that surrounded Abraham, this night sky was telling him of God's faithfulness. It was something tangible like that thumb piano. And Abraham, it says, believed God. Not believed in God. I I made that point last week. It's not just about us knowing some facts and true things. This is a personal trust thing. We believe God in what he has said. Abraham believes God in what happens. He is credited righteous in God's sight by trust in what God has said he will do, not by works or earning. And then, we didn't read this part, then God does something utterly strange. It is bizarre. You can read it in Genesis 15 this afternoon. He does something that for us seems really weird. Um, God has Abraham begin the process of a covenant ceremony. 
a covenant ceremony. Now, in Abraham's world, covenants were kind of like a mix between treaties, like between nations that had been at war that are coming to peace, and contracts. Um, And what you would do, essentially, is, let's say it was a treaty, a war had ended. The greater king who had won would dictate to the lesser king and the lesser nation the terms of you know, how life was going to be after this. The great king would say, you are going to have to do these things, and if you do these things, I won't invade you. If you do these things, I won't overtax you. If you do these things, we'll be, you'll, be, you'll have some peace. You'll have some safety. And to seal that covenant ceremony, they would do something that seems very strange and gruesome to us. They would take animals and literally cut them in half, place them on either side to create a pathway between the animals' bodies, and then both those kings would walk on that pathway. And what they were, it was like a really gruesome and literal, like we, we say, I swear, uh, cross my heart and hope to die. It was that kind of thing. What they were saying when they walked between those animals is if I break this covenant, if I break this covenant that we just made, either one of us, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's gruesome, but it's a cross my heart, hope to die. I swear, I'm going to do this. And if I don't, may what happened to these animals happen to me. So that's the like kind of background of what's going on here. But God does something remarkable in Genesis 15. He has Abraham take the animals and cut them and make the pathway. And then God symbolically walks that path alone. He does not allow Abraham to walk down the path to make the the, cross my heart hope to die. God does it by himself. He makes Abraham fall into a deep sleep. And then great darkness comes so Abraham can't get there. He could not even go down the pathway if he wanted to. But right in front of Abraham's face, God symbolically, uh, there's like a, 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 it's the cloud of fire, essentially this flaming pot thing, goes and Abraham sees this happen. That God is swearing here. This agreement that we've made, this vow that I've just taken, I am swearing to you that I have promised and I will make it happen. I am going to bring blessing and life to this world and I will do whatever it takes to make that happen. That's what God is saying. So when Paul starts talking here in verse 15 about a human covenant that's been duly established, he's talking about the background of this moment. That right here at the beginning of God's works, promising to Abraham that God is laying the foundation that will go for everything. That being a part of God's people is not a matter of earning. It's not a matter of you took a vow and you really meant it. It's not a transaction that happens. It's not two partners signing a contract, and if we do this, then God will do that. The beginning, the bedrock, the foundation of everything else that comes after this ceremony in Scripture is this. And this is the foundation of who we are as God's people, who we are as individuals in a local church. We are people whose identity, whose righteousness, whose security is entirely tied up with God and His purposes and His commitment to His purposes. We are loved by Him and we don't have to go looking for an explanation to make that make sense. 
we did not keep up our end of the bargain. If there was an end of the bargain to be kept up, God's grace is baffling, and that's part of the point. We aren't people who make something out of themselves or strive to earn anything like a badge or a trophy. We're people that are swept up into God's love and will remain baffled at this love for eternity because our confidence will always be God's faithfulness. That was the point to Abraham that day. Abraham, I'm going to make this happen. I will bless. I will do it through your descendant, your descendants. But this is God's commitment at work. And He does not change. His purposes are sure. God made that commitment to Abraham and it goes for all who come to God by faith. Everything else that happens in Scripture is an unfolding of this. When God gives the law through Moses at Mount Sinai, 430 years later, it's not God saying, promise didn't work, I'm shifting, now you've got to earn, because that didn't work. That's not, what he, that's not what God's doing. He does not change His mind. He's not adjusting the terms of the relationship. Next week we're going to talk more about the law of Moses and why God gave it. But suffice to say, God said... And showed what he meant to Abraham all those years ago. And he did not waver from that promise. And the story of scripture is the story of God keeping that commitment that he made. And it finally meets its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. It is there when we see the reality of what God had pledged to Abraham symbolically. When Jesus bears the punishment that sin deserves. God had shown Abraham in that, for us, very weird covenant ceremony. He had shown him all of that because he wanted to make clear that God would do whatever it took to to see sin and its power conquered. That God would do whatever it took to see His creation set free from curse. And in Jesus, God takes to Himself a human nature. And He bears the guilt for all of our failure Jesus is God keeping His promises. Jesus is God moving heaven and earth to make sure it happens. Now, sometimes it's hard to see this. Sometimes it's hard to see this when we're in the weeds of day-to-day life. A lot of times, um, life can feel like Abraham ten years after the promise, and you're saying, God, you said that you would change my heart, that, that, that you're doing that, but I do not feel like I am a better person than I was. I feel like I'm in a worse state now. You said, you promised your grace would find me and transform me. And I'm having a hard time believing this. And it's hard in the weeds. I heard somebody say once that uh, it's hard to hear God's word in audio, and to remember the words of His promise in audio when we have the difficulties of life in audio and video. The difficulties of life seem more tangible and real and present to us than just some words, right? And I get it, except for this. The Christian life is not designed to just be audio. It's not just words. God seals His intentions to us. 
Not through a covenant ceremony. I'm not saying go find some animals and cut them up and God's going to do that for you this afternoon. Though when we read the story of Abraham, it can give us confidence of God's faithfulness. But God does use the stuff of creation. And He condescends to communicate with us in meaningful ways. This is what I mean. That's what the sacraments are. We talk about the Lord's Supper. We talk about baptism. These are God taking ordinary things and setting them apart for His purpose to communicate to us His extraordinary grace. It's why Augustine, the the church father of the 5th century, called the sacraments visible words. Because it's sometimes hard to hear. But in a minute, when we take up that piece of, you know, flavorless wafer you guys have, and that, and that little set of grape juice, those are tangible things. And when your ears can't hear, you can still taste and touch and smell. It is God communicating to us in a way fitted to us. It is Him taking the stuff of creation and setting them apart as pledges. Think of baptism. God uses ordinary water. We can joke about holy water. You see them in like horror movies. The priest always has it and throws it at the... um, But God uses ordinary water. Most common thing on earth, literally. And it speaks to us that God washes us clean. That that's who He is. And then like Abraham, every time he looked into the night sky and saw the stars, they were pledged to him that God would keep his commitment. For us, in a sense, we can walk as the baptized and every time we see water or touch water or hear water, it can be a pledge to us. It's it's the most common thing on earth screaming at us to believe it is God who washes you clean. He has made the commitment to you. It is Him who washes you clean. Or think of the Lord's Supper. God uses the ordinary things of bread and grape juice or wine. And as we physically eat and drink these things, we are by faith being spiritually nourished by the body and blood of Jesus. Which means that we are finding our sustenance in what He has done for us. But not just the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. Or baptism. In a very real sense, what the local church is designed to be is in our relationships, we become pledges of God's intentions for us. This is the way it is supposed to be. We are going, we are to be living, breathing seals and pledges of God's intentions for one another. And so that's why in our worship service we have that section of blessing each other in His name. We've expanded that recently. But when we say, peace be with you and also with you, it's not me just saying, hope you guys are doing well. And you saying, you too, buddy. And then when we say, what's our prayer for the children that belong to our church? It's not just like, hope you guys do well later. No, we are people who have been cleansed 
and called and set apart ordinary people who have been set apart for God's extraordinary grace. And in his name, we are enabled to bless one another. And in a sense, by his Holy Spirit, God speaks to us through the words of each other. It's a powerful thing. But it's not just supposed to be limited to those four sentences. We embody God's love for one another. It's why we've been placed together with each other. We are not just instruments in His hand. We are children who follow after our Father. So remember, friends, when it's hard, when the promise to believe that I'm righteous by faith and I'm being transformed by God's grace is hard to take at God's Word, open your ears and look around. When you hug me, when you shake my hand, when I hear your voice, when I see your face, these are pledges to me that God loves me. They are proofs to me that God is at work by His Holy Spirit to renew His broken creation. And He starts individually with us. When you are struggling... You are surrounded, not just by people, but as I said, look into the night sky. Tonight when the sun goes down, go out and count the stars. Just try. You can't. Abraham tried, I'm sure, the rest of his life to go out and say, well, you know. When you hear water, it is the pledge. As somebody told me years ago, and this is going to sound weird, but there's, they said every time I take a shower, it's not a new baptism. But I'm reminded, God set that ordinary water apart when I was baptized to pledge to me His faithfulness. So when I wash my hands, when I'm near a creek, these are all screaming at me to know and believe that I'm loved. We are surrounded not just by words that tell us of God's love, but we are surrounded by an entire world that proclaims His glory. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that it's not just words. I love your words. And your words are true because you are true. When you speak, it is truth. But it's so hard just to have words sometimes or to feel that way. So I thank you, Lord, that you have worked to communicate to us in ways that we can understand, that we can touch and taste and smell and experience that. I thank you for the sacraments. I thank you for the, the local church. I thank you for the world that you've created that you are renewing. So seal to us in our hearts your commitment that we would not look to ourselves, our own confidence and ability, but that we would again and again come back to you and your intentions for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.